Good evening. The suspect in the R-Train mass shooting was arrested today. WBAI was there. The race for governor of New York is thrown wide open as the lieutenant governor is arrested by federal agents charged in a campaign scam and a change of government in Pakistan. Is the hand of the United States responsible? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo. The alleged suspect in the shooting on the R train during the rush hour yesterday morning was apprehended on the Lower East Side early this afternoon, the East Village neighborhood known as part of the Lower East Side. This was sound of the arrest. Frank R. James was taken into custody 30 hours after he allegedly fired 33 bullets in the subway car, wounding 10 innocent bystanders, five critically. WBAI was on the scene moments after the arrest and spoke with a waiter at a coffee shop who says he saw the suspect and the arrest. Did you see what happened? Uh, not the whole thing, no. What part of it did you see? I just saw the suspect uh, standing in the corner, and then I was working, so I came outside to try to recognize him, and then, you know, he was already yelling and everything, so he had already gotten to him. Yeah. How did you know he was the suspect? I didn't know. I didn't know. I went back outside to take it, because I saw him with the backpack, and then I just came outside to try to get a better look at him, and then everything just started going down. Yeah. You work here? Yeah, I work here. Cool. The 61-year-old suspect was arrested after a Syrian immigrant working in the East Village recognized him and flagged down a passing police car. The hero is 21-year-old Zach Tahahan. He was heralded for his quick thinking. Chief of Detectives James Essing made the official announcement of the arrest from police headquarters. So yesterday, we recovered video of him prior to the incident entering the Kings Highway subway station. He has the same black cart that he has later recovered on the crime scene. The pictures are to my right over here. This station is available electronically um, after this. This station is three blocks from where he recovered the U-Haul truck that he rented in Philadelphia. The key to that truck was recovered at the crime scene. This jacket, the distinctive orange jacket, was also recovered, as well as his construction helmet he was wearing, and we, we recovered that in a garbage uh, bin in transit. We believe, but this is still early in the investigation, that after firing his weapon 33 times at innocent New York City subway riders, Mr. James boarded an R train that had pulled into the station went one stop up and exited at 25th Street Station. We also have a picture of that. The gun used in this, a 9mm Glock, which was recovered at this crime scene, was bought, was purchased by Mr. James in 2011 in Ohio. We tracked Mr. James and his last known whereabouts was 7th Avenue and 9th Street in Park Slope, entering the subway. Minutes ago, thankfully, NYPD patrol officers from the 9th Precinct responded to St. Mark's and 1st Avenue, where they apprehended him without incident. Chief James Essing. 
Authorities had offered a reward of up to $50,000 for information leading to the arrest and indictment of the suspect. A 10-page federal court filing alleged the gunman tried to scratch away the serial numbers on the illegally purchased Glock 17 weapon used in the assault and left behind a bag that contained, quote, black powder-filled explosives inside the train. Two hours before the assault in Brooklyn, James was caught on video wearing a hard hat and orange work vest as he walked two blocks away from a stop on the end line. That's according to the court papers. Vice President Kamala Harris was asked about the arrest today and gave this response. I applaud all of the law enforcement officials, the first responders, and, um, and the New Yorkers, the civilians who were showing such heroism yesterday, such concern for their fellow person, and, um, and we will see what comes next in terms of the investigation and, and consequences um, for, for what happened yesterday. There's no question it was tragic, but it also did demonstrate the, um, the, the incredible work that is being done by first responders, by, uh, by law enforcement officials, and by, by the community, in this case, New Yorkers. The motive, that was the vice president, the motive behind the shooting spree remained unclear, with James slipping away from the chaotic, uh, chaotic crime scene. A police source says it's a miracle no one was killed. The investigators, as reported earlier, recovered 33 9mm shell casings from inside the subway car. And we'll be following that story as it develops. And in more news having to do with arrests yesterday, Governor uh, Kathy Hochul claimed today that Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin's indictment on federal bribery charges came as a surprise. Hochul says she made the best decision possible with the information she had at the time she chose Benjamin as her lieutenant governor. Benjamin resigned yesterday, hours after he was arrested. The indictment says Benjamin, while state senator, allegedly sh- uh offered a fit or steered a $50,000 state grant to Harlem real estate developer, Gerald Migdahl, an attorney for the Southern District of New York is Damian Williams. He had this to say yesterday. Today we announced that Brian Benjamin, the Lieutenant Governor of the state of New York has been indicted for bribery and related offenses. Mr. Benjamin surrendered to law enforcement this morning and will be presented this afternoon before Magistrate Judge Wayne. This is a simple story of corruption. We allege that Benjamin struck a corrupt bargain with a real estate developer referred to in the indictment as CC1. Benjamin allegedly directed a $50,000 state grant to a nonprofit organization controlled by CC1. And in exchange, Benjamin received tens of thousands of dollars of campaign contributions from CC1. Those contributions were directed both to Benjamin's State Senate Campaign Committee and to Benjamin's New York City Comptroller Campaign. Taxpayer money for campaign contributions. Quid pro quo. This for that. That's bribery, plain and simple. But that's not all. We also allege that Benjamin repeatedly lied to cover up the bribery scheme, including by falsifying campaign forms and misleading city regulators. And we allege that Benjamin repeatedly lied on the vetting forms that he filled out before he was appointed lieutenant governor. That's a cover-up. The FBI had this to say. 
In early 2019, Brian Benjamin began planning his campaign for New York City Comptroller while also running for re-election for the New York State Senate. In order to procure funding for this campaign, as alleged, Benjamin asked an individual identified as CC1, as Damian noted, to procure several small donor donations. In exchange for these donations, Benjamin used his official position as New York State Senator to allocate discretionary funding to an organization controlled by CC1. Again, that is your quid pro quo. Throughout the course of this scheme, Benjamin remained aware of at least some of the fundraising efforts and accepting numerous small donations on its own is not illegal. But it is, however, illegal to exploit one's official authority by allocating state funds as part of a bribe to procure these donations and to engage in activity to then cover up that bribe. As alleged, Benjamin's conduct directly circumvents those procedures put in place to keep our system fair. And for that, those reasons, he's facing federal charges today. This remains very much an ongoing investigation. And that was the FBI telling about the charges leveled against a former lieutenant governor at this point, Benjamin, uh, Brian Benjamin. Complicating matters, Benjamin will remain on the Democratic ballot for the June 28th primary despite his resignation. There is a bright spot in all of this, though, says tax rights activist Jim Henry. Benjamin stood in the way, he says, of a reform that uh, might have a chance now. It would be a sales tax or to collect the money because the sales tax does exist and has since 1905 to collect the sales tax on stock transfers, about a small fraction of a percent, we're told, that hasn't been enforced since shortly after the law was passed in 1905. Jim Henry had this to say. He was shown to do a kind of pay-to-play scheme in which he gave state money in exchange for getting campaign contributions from a real estate developer. First thing to note is that he has always been the most foremost opponent in the Senate of the proposal we've had, nearly got passed last year, to do the repeal of the stock transfer tax that's now amounting to about $15 billion a year. New York State just collects the money based on all the trades that go on on the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange and then rebates it to these investors. Uh, he's a banker and a real estate developer by training, and he has been a very vigorous opponent of the idea that we should stop rebating this money to Wall Street. He basically also gets a fair amount of campaign contributions from Wall Street. And so Hochul, who we had hopes of being somewhat more progressive than Cuomo did, turns out to have been uh, opposed to this as well. So. I think the opening that this creates is important because we had the bill in place. We had a majority in both the Senate and the Assembly to pass it, to stop rebating $15 billion a year to Wall Street. And it was basically stopped at that point by Cuomo. This time around, when we tried to run it up the flagpole, it was Lieutenant Governor Benjamin, who was the big opponent of it, based on his financial background. This is a tax that's been in place in New York State since 1905. It's a 0.1% sales tax on trades on the New York Stock Exchange. So it's really a very progressive sales tax that's almost not noticeable to any investor. I mean, the average trade on the NASDAQ Exchange last year was about $8,800. And this would cost that trader about $8.80. It's just that there's trillions and trillions of dollars of trading going on, especially now, and it's really gone through the roof. 
So what's the opportunity now? We think that Hochul is going to be struggling in this primary and going forward. She's been shaken up by the fact that she didn't vet this guy properly. She pledged to fight corruption and to have a new day in New York State. And this is an outrageous scandal. Her right-hand guy has just been indicted on five counts of bribery by the U.S. Southern District. It clears the way for Attorney General James, if she wants to, to run, to go back into the race and for Zephyr Teachout to jump back in and run for attorney general. Time is short, but I'm told by my friends in the New York Assembly that this really does open the way to reintroduce this legislation and put some pressure on Hochul uh, to support it. Who's Gerald Migdahl? Do you know anything about him? He's the real estate developer that uh, was arrested in November over wire fraud charges related to this case. He's the guy that the Lieutenant Governor Benjamin, apparently when he was running for state senate, did this scheme in which he provided state money to a charity that Migdal had. In return for that, Migdal had many of his family members and friends and relatives write a campaign contribution, not only to State Senator Benjamin, but also to the um, State Democratic Senate Committee in New York. Right. If this is going on here... Do you think Hochul's going to get arrested, too? I mean, why wouldn't it be in her world? Well, I mean, it's certainly an opportunity to sit Mr. Benjamin down and offer him some plea deals. And I bet there's an awful lot of people in the state Senate and the legislature who are not strangers to this kind of behavior. Anytime you have a one-party state, you tend to have New York has been controlled by Democrats for a very long time. I think apart from the Wall Street contributions and the political interest that Wall Street has on the Democratic Party in New York, and in particular the highest levels of the Democratic Party, we would have had this rebate repealed a long time ago. People are looking for revenues here to invest in things like climate change and college debt relief, better policing and closing the nuclear power plants. We also have a huge debt level in New York. We could pay that down. There's any number of worthy public investments. And if we run out of ideas, we can always give it to the Ukrainian refugees. I mean, it's just an easy way for a tax that is very easy to collect and to enforce and is paid for by non-resident, wealthy (laughs) New Yorkers using our exchange to raise a hell of a lot of revenue. I hope this is an opening. And that's Jim Henry. He's a tax rights activist. And in international news that also is related to national, U.S. President Joe Biden announced an additional $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine on Wednesday, expanding the scope of the systems provided to include heavy artillery ahead of a wider Russian assault expected in eastern Ukraine. The package, which brings the total military aid tally since Russian forces invaded in February to more than $2.5 billion, includes artillery, artillery rounds, armored personnel carriers, and unmanned coastal defense boats. Biden said that in a statement after a phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, the Pentagon press spokesperson John Kirby said this today. This has now committed more than $3.2 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since the beginning of the Biden administration, including approximately $2.6 billion since the beginning, just since the beginning, of their unprovoked invasion on February 24th. The United States also continues to work with its allies and partners to identify and provide Ukraine with additional capabilities, capabilities that aren't in our stocks, that we aren't as uh, as able to get to them directly. 
And we're going to obviously continue to utilize all the available tools uh, at our disposal to support Ukraine's armed forces in the face of Russian aggression. And that's John Kirby. He's the Pentagon spokesperson. And in more news from uh, the other side of the world, the United States congratulated Pakistani Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif on his election win this week. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said in a statement today, the United States views a strong, prosperous and democratic Pakistan as essential for the interests of both our countries. Imran Khan, who the former prime minister, was uh, deposed in a uh, first time ever vote of no confidence by the Pakistani parliament. That has led many to say, was the United States involved in part because of Pakistan's support for the Taliban government and opposition to U.S. policy in Afghanistan under Khan, and Khan's statements uh, in support of Russia and refusal to get on board, as did uh, India as well, with the U.S. uh, support of the government in Kiev. We spoke with Junaid Ahmad. He's a professor of religion and world politics at the University of Lahore, he joins WBAI from Islamabad. The United States has also been concocting, engineering this plot, what Imran Khan calls a conspiracy, to get rid of him. And there's a very uh, understandable motivation that would be part of Washington's concerns when it comes to Imran Khan and his uh, carving out a somewhat more independent foreign policy than usually the Islamabad has uh, with Washington, which has kind of been very close relationship most of the time with some ups and downs. But clearly Imran Khan, who had been a critic of the war on terror since 2001, he has continued to try to carve out an independent foreign policy. And of course, that seems to be intolerable for the United States and for the many domestic uh, elites as well, including what now seems to be the participation in this uh, attempt to get rid of uh, Khan, the participation of the uh, Pakistani military, specifically the chief of army staff. How is it that folks know the United States is behind this? How, what's the evidence of that? What is now being called as lettergate, the idea that there was a diplomatic cable that was about a meeting between an assistant secretary of state, and now he's been named Donald Liu, meeting with the Pakistani ambassador in Washington, who has been perceived as being closer to Washington than he has been to Islamabad, issuing him a threat that if a motion for a vote of no confidence succeeds against Imran Khan, then we will, quote-unquote, forgive Pakistan. And if it doesn't, Pakistan will be punished and face horrible consequences. Now, this has been subsequently confirmed by Donald Liu's own, at a congressional hearing, Donald Liu's own comments, which, of course, didn't directly say this, but more or less basically intended to say the same thing. And the other thing was that this threat that was in this diplomatic cable calling for a motion of no confidence, this actually happened before even the opposition parties moved for a no confidence vote. The other important thing is what seems to be the immediate reason why the United States and other Western capitals were incredibly angry was his position on this, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. So he has tried to stay neutral. He has called for a diplomatic resolution maybe the Chinese mediating, but he has not been willing, like many other countries, including America's close ally, India, to condemn it. He was in Russia on the day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Of course, he couldn't foresee that. And since that time, he has been pressured to condemn, which he has refused to, to the extent that he was issued a 
threatening letter by European ambassadors in Islamabad to which he said, we are not your slaves. What about the role of the military? That's been incredibly interesting, Paul. We did not know exactly what was going on, but we did see the signs that a Pakistani military that otherwise was with Khan or at least was okay, fine with Khan, I think that it's a gross mistake to portray it as if Khan was ever their pup. They had similar views on certain aspects of foreign policies. From the beginning of last year, we actually saw pretty clear signs of differences emerging. And in the middle of this crisis, it became crystal clear. As soon as Khan articulated his position on these things, the next day, the chief of army staff effectively contradicts everything he says. So it became clear and clear that at least the top brass, so the military high command, some of it was against Khan. But at the same time, it seems like the military is deeply divided, where probably the majority of the officer corps and soldiers are with Khan. The United States, as well as many elites in Pakistan as well, have always called them Taliban Khan, a gross kind of caricature of him and his position. His position was very simple, that the invasion occupation of Afghanistan and its spillover effects, which were massive in Pakistan itself, were both immoral and counterproductive. It's not so much that he now recognized the Taliban, it's that he's always maintained this position. What happens next? This is the interesting development that's happened over the past 24 hours. So this certainly is not the end of Khan's political career. And if this movement is sustained in support of him, it could compel the new government that's now emerged to hold early elections. Imran Khan, he's a professor of religion and world politics at the University of Lahore. He joins WBS, uh, WBAI from Islamabad. And that's some of the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for joining us.